0: SunCast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. SunCast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: What is the installed volume over time? And if we filled a train, a regular freight train full of solar panels that are filled to the top, that train would extend from California almost to New York. Hey there, solar warriors.
0: I'm Nico Johnson, and this is SunCast each week
2: i pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time i hope what you learn from this
0: conversation is a catalyst for your own growth so thanks for tuning in and welcome to
2: our tribe happy thanksgiving today is episode 127 and today i want to introduce a voice to suncast that many of you who've been around in solar, especially in California, likely already know. Back in episodes 40 and 42 with Corey Vaughan, we talked about a pioneer of the industry named Sam Vanderhoof. Now, Sam runs the consultancy Solar Cowboys, and I thought it fitting to air his episode on Thanksgiving because he's a person we all should be thankful for. Sam is one of the real pioneers in this industry, and I'm honored to have been able to host him on Suncast. Sam was part of the coming of age from catalog sales of off-grid solar products to introducing some of the most transformative grid tie systems to the industry. He was also featured in Jeff Spee's documentary Solar Roots this past year, and I hope by the end you'll feel you know him a little better. I also hope you enjoy his stories. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice in over 125 amazing episodes archived at MySuncast.com. While you're there, check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be part of my inner circle of Solar Warriors and trusted advisors. Just click on the member button to learn more. Happy Thanksgiving again, Solar Warriors. And now, get ready to tune up your skills as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast.
0: All right, Solar Warriors, today we are having a conversation with a guy that many of you are familiar perhaps with his name or his brand, Solar Cowboys, or maybe you've never heard of him at all. For that, uh, I hope that you'll study a little more about the history, at least of the U.S. solar market uh, and some of its principal founders and and, and hardworking pioneers, but it's my genuine pleasure uh, and honor to be able to welcome someone to, Sol- to Suncast who has been in the industry for 40 plus years, who started, <laughs> who started a company in Northern California that became the largest mail order solar company. And you know, he's been f- everywhere from Photocom to you know Xantrex and Shot, SMA. He, he, his thumbprint is veritably on the US solar market and in a way very few others can claim. Sam Vanderhoof... Welcome to Suncast.
1: Thanks, Nico. Glad to be here. I could
0: try, uh, and it would be feeble, to paint the picture of the humble beginnings for you of uh, beginning in what, what at the time was not an industry at all. But why don't I let you, you, you're an eloquent speaker and a great storyteller. Could you help me understand how you went from professional motorcycle racing into the wild, wild west of solar energy collection?
1: Long story.
2: <laughs> I'm not looking for the whole
1: forty <laughs> years right now,
0: but maybe we could start back in, um, you know, back in Nevada City and John Hill in the Earth Store.
1: Okay, well, just break it down just a little bit. So, I graduated from college, and in 1976, there was a back to the land movement, especially in California, but other places in, in the U.S. and around the world. So, one of the things that I did on the weekends in between, you know, school studies was to look at off grid properties that I could afford throughout Northern California, so those took me to all different spots and and it was about you know looking searching for a community, a place to raise a family, a place to uh, that have the right climate uh, and affordable as well so that was my weekend adventures was you know checking out the uh, Northern California neighborhood, and I came upon this property in Nevada City, Grass Valley area, Nevada Mm -hmm. County, that was affordable and ended up buying it and had no idea what the next step was. And I bet that out in
0: the remote areas of Grass Valley at this time, there probably wasn't a whole lot of uh, electricity already
1: wired out to these sites. (laughs) Basically, in those days, none. It was Mm -hmm. a lot of folks beginning to live off-grid. But that (laughs) off-grid usually meant uh, building your own house Mm -hmm. or, you know, living in a, TP or something for a while while you built, built a house and yeah. then you know the amenities you know we had things like outhouses we had uh, kerosene lamps yeah. we went without you know music sometimes unless it was homegrown music yeah we didn't have electricity we didn't have regular lamps we didn't have at those times computers we could run things off batteries and usually things like D cell batteries or AAA batteries. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we used.
0: And do you remember the first time you actually held a solar, a solar panel or a
1: solar cell in your hand? Yeah, it was, it was uh, before 1976, probably 1975. Mm -hmm. Uh, A friend of mine that I went to school with, his dad worked for JPL working on the satellite systems for spacecraft. Right. And he gave me this little panel, and it was, you know, the, maybe the size of a, a legal pad of paper, mm-hmm. about that size. And it was around five watts. And he said, "Here, you may be able to use this in your off-grid uh, living." <laughs> and, yeah. and by the way, at that time, my friends, unbeknownst to me, had made side bets that we would never make it that first year. Do you mean, meaning you wouldn't, you wouldn't last. It wouldn't last on the off, in, in the off grid, and it's difficult. You know, we had to build I roads, doubt. we had to build a house, we had to build all that stuff, and, and try to make a living, and and raise two kids at the same time. So it wasn't; it was a challenge.
0: But last, you did, and I bet that five watt panel at that time was. Uh, I mean, could you give us a, a sense of the scale of what was available and what power uh, others had access to?
1: Well, at that time, you know, in in those years almost n- none of the solar modules solar panels were used for you know powering you know, residences or anything yeah. like that mainly the only place it could it was affordable was for spacecraft or some telecommunications that kind of thing was the, mm-hmm. the you know the first use of pv and you know the price per watt was outrageous i mean i'm not even i don't even remember the, the exact price per watt but it was probably in the hundreds of dollars per watt
0: I remember you told me that actually uh, that five watt panel was more, gave you more power to power, you know, your radio and the Grateful Dead than the local radio station had to power
1: (laughs) the signal that couldn't get to you. Yeah. Good, good story. So I was around car mechanics and motorcycle mechanics. So I, I knew how to twist wires together and, and 12 volt systems. So I was pretty up on that, you know, through my college years trying to keep cars running. So one of the things I did was, Pull old car battery out and hook the solar panel to the car battery and that car battery could be charged it was kind of like magic put it in the sun and the battery wasn't going down it was going up so the next idea was just throw on a a car stereo tape deck so i put (laughs) a pretty nice stereo tape deck 12 volt on that battery and boom i had music and then put a car stoplight bulb on it. And boom, I had light. That was the day that your friends lost their bet. It was a a different turnaround for sure. (laughs) But at that time, I mean, one of the things that, you know, we're talking 40 plus years ago, I remember turning on this radio and seeing what radio stations were available. And we were 20 miles, maybe 18 miles as crow flies from Nevada City. And that's where a, a new radio station, which is starting KVMR, it was a local community radio station, and they came on, and they had around five watts worth of power coming out of their radio station. And they were saying, you know, we're on the air, it's five watts, or whatever, but four and a half watts, something like that. But at the time, I had a little bit more power than they had That's amazing. this little panel.
0: Well, thankfully, you weren't trying to start a bootleg radio station to compete with them. <laughs> Sam, the Earth Store has its own place in in solar lore. You know how did it occur to you and Johnny Hill to start the Earth Store? Tell me about that.
1: Well, Johnny actually started the Earth Store first. Okay. That was his baby. Remember, we this back to the land movement. A lot of folks coming out of school, coming out of the Bay Area, coming even from back east, moving to communities in our neighborhood were, were groups like Ananda, a religious community that had hundreds of people living there at the time and all this was off-grid so the earth store was actually in the same building as the um it was called mother truckers which was a health food store still around yeah still around today and so folks would come in to buy food and remember the closest food hardware stores town was 20 miles away, drive. So 20 miles each way. So it's 40 miles round trip in those days. that it was a lot of gas and time. So the earth store and some other truckers grew out of the necessity of having localized food. And the next thing was to have hardware, hardware, you know, as you're building a house, you need nails, you need plumbing, <laughs> you need, you know, things for building a, an off-grid home. So that's what Johnny did was to bring in these off-grid or necessities for, for building a, um, a home, and plumbing parts was part of that water. You needed water, you needed a road, you needed you know, a roof over your head. So Johnny Hill began to work de facto as a hardware store for all these, these small items that you didn't want to drive 40 miles to town to get a nut and bolt or something like that. So the store started carrying those things. One of those things, one of the major things, was kerosene to run kerosene lamps. So in order to, you know, stay up and be able to read after the sun went down, he used kerosene. That was the norm. So Johnny would buy barrels of kerosene and sell it in gallons. And then, oh, by the way, you needed a lamp. So he would sell right. lamps. So that was a good part of the, the uh, supply for the earth store was kerosene lamps and uh, the kerosene to run them.
0: And at what point did
1: solar come into the picture for you guys? Well, I was one of those customers of Johnny's. I would walk in and buy a you know bag of nails or something, and and one day I walked in with a solar panel and said, "Hey, Johnny, have you ever seen one of these?" And he had never seen it, and I kind of showed him what it would do, and he said something like, "Wow, this is going to put me out of the kerosene business."
0: Uh-huh.
1: So as that year went by. He asked me if I'd come in to the store a day or two a week and help put together you know, part of the energy, part of the store to provide that energy alternative to kerosene. And that was not just solar. It didn't really start off as solar. It started off because solar was so expensive. It really started off running things off batteries mm-hmm. and how to do that. So, we ended up uh writing little pamphlets on how to do that how to hook your car battery into another battery to be able to charge that battery when you were driving to, to to power a tape deck to power some lights and that's how it really started and by the time you had that working, this is all you know within a one or two year period, then you put a solar panel on it, and it was uh perpetual motion amazing. So I see how
0: how this is evolving, and and at what point did the idea of starting independent
1: power come uh, come into your mind? How did that come about? Well, just still at the Earth Store. So Johnny asked me to come in for a day or two a week, mm. and basically work on this energy part, and then also Ron Kennedy was around at that time. So Ron came in and helped out. I mean, nobody, mm. we're all work, living off grid. We didn't want full time jobs. You know, mm. we're building our our own homes and homestead. and That took a lot of time. So we'd come in one or two days a week, so we became partners in the Earth Store. And so there was three of us, and then there was one more person, Shelly, that came in. So it was four of us, basically, that worked on the Earth Store, and we could work there a couple days a week and kept the thing running. So, and it had books and magazines, and it got larger and larger and larger. So at one point, myself and Ron decided to split off and start Independent Power Company. Mm-hmm. And that was just focused on energy, not on hardware. And Johnny kept the hardware store part and sold retail. So we started selling a little bit more, doing some manufacturing of off-grid products okay. and selling those more wholesale.
0: Wow. And as you mentioned, it was entirely mail order. Is that right? Right. And you're focused all entirely on the off-grid market, servicing the off-grid market. To put it into cont- context, again, this is late 70s, early 80s. There was no notion of, of on-grid solar. There was really satellite and then terrestrial, but
1: terrestrial was very homesteader, very off-grid. That accurate? Even homesteader was just starting. Uh, remember, at the price per watt for solar, it was really, really, really expensive in um, the hundreds of dollars per watt. So a modest panel, maybe. You were lucky to have one solar panel yeah. at that time. <laughs> How were you finding customers? Well, was remember it was... It was um, Pre computer, so you gotta remember that. Yeah. Everything was mail. Everything was mail order. If you were gonna buy something, it was, you know, ads in the back. This is it the era was, uh, of the Sears catalog, right? I mean this is Sears Mother Earth News was something yeah. that, you know, those kind of magazines. But also developing mailing lists and sending out postcards and catalogs and things like that. Information was was you know, was the key. You know, it said before writing with uh, a fellow David Colburn information little pamphlets and these pamphlets would would talk about uh, solar, it would talk about batteries. So it you know had different pamphlets that would show how to convert uh, a turntable for you know playing records to twelve volt. So a lot of it was based around the twelve volt battery economy, taking things from RVs and and automotive batteries. Once you had this appliances sort of working, adding a solar panel was a no brainer. Of course Expensive.
0: From the sticks, as you put it, from Nevada City. Where were you coming up with lists of, uh, or names of people? How were you finding customers to send this catalog
1: to? Well, especially when we started manufacturing equipment, uh, we made 12 volt blenders, it was one of the first things we built. And wow. little 12 volt toys and little appliances and converted the t- turntables and things like that. We would put little pamphlets together on you know, how this stuff worked over time people started sending us checks. Yeah. We get a check in the mail it would say blub I want to buy 3 blenders for my friends.
0: I get it but where were they getting the pamphlets from? Where how were they finding out about the fact that you existed? They had
1: friends that were in Nevada City they would totally word of mouth. Take these yeah it was all word of mouth. It was, they would grab that pamphlet and give it to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and copy it and so we started getting these inquiries and checks from other we, we didn't there was no intent to start a mail order business at all i remember yeah i remember when we
0: were at the i don't know if it was you but it was, seems like uh there was some, someone else talking about uh, the store in loomis where they had to come up with a scheme art rudin was talking about how he had to come up with this payment scheme and it was all cash and he had to explain the cash payment system of northern california for the solar panels from art from arco solar i mean is that similar to you you guys had you just cash was coming in and you didn't even you didn't know where it was coming from sometimes, and
1: well, in, in those days, very few jobs. When we call it the ridge, so pot growing was was a supplemental income for a lot of folks, uh-huh. and it wasn't large; it was you know modest. But yeah. so yeah, it was a uh, that was a cash cash economy, cash economy for the ridge. But it was also it was mostly at that time you know families being able to get a little bit of income from that or having income coming from outside sources. People would drive to the cities and work for a few days or a week and then come back or teach school or that kind of thing. So, yeah, the cash was what drove a lot of this. Yeah. And the development and the the necessity of being able to have items to live off-grid, whatever that might be. Why did you sell independent power to Photocom? It was a tough decision. It was, you know, Miner and Ron's... um, Maybe. And and it was doing really well, actually. We were doing quite well. But at that time, the industry was driven by federal tax credits. And most of that was for hot water solar equipment. It was coming to an end, and we knew it. And Mm -hmm. it was real clear that the tax credits were not going to be extended. And at that time, it was 55% of the cost of the system. So it was huge. It was really important for a lot of companies to have that, that tax credit we didn't know if we could survive without that tax credit. Yeah. So that was a big decision. What do we do? Do we go down and hawk our houses and try to keep this thing rolling? What will the industry look like? And it wasn't much of an industry at the time in a year or two. So we mm-hmm. didn't know if we could survive it. That was a big thing. Yeah. And we already had a lot of friends that were in the hot water business going out of business yeah. just because of that. And yeah. so in order to not be sucked into that, uh, that, um, situation we had looked around and this company photocom was putting together companies and there was uh, you know half a dozen companies in the u.s that were doing pretty well at the time for off grid and they bought all these companies and and brought them in to be photocom
0: yeah which continues to this day as a mostly off-grid focused
1: uh, right, right, right.
0: Yes, yeah, I think it's the largest off-grid solar company in the world now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it allowed us to do things that we couldn't do. I mean, one of the things they did was to to pay for more marketing materials, a slicker, better written catalog. And we were in the catalog sales business at that right. time. So that helped us to do that. So, you know, it was a good partnership at the time. But one of the things we, you know, quick story about that, uh, and remember, Photocom at that time was, uh, they had done, off grid for telecommunication. That's where the photocom, the com part was communications, and that's mm-hmm. what they thought they were going to do was was supply equipment photovoltaic, especially for yeah. off grid uh, telecommunications. And and we were a little different than that. We didn't do that. We did off grid residential mainly. And when we signed the contract, and it was a, a quite a negotiation, the the, the head guy that um, that owned photocom, he stood up after it was signed, the contract, and and shook my hand and Ron's hand and said the words. And I remember the words because Ron and I spoke about it many times. Boys, you're going to pay for yourself. And he walked out of the room. You know, we we just kind of scratched your head. And he's a businessman. And it was interesting that year, he more than doubled the profit in the amount of money he had paid for a company. Wow. And continued to do that. And because he, he was smart enough to know that he could give us the funds to be able to build what we already had and build it up, and he did quite well. Amazing, and we You're did gonna... well too. And we had a two-year contract at that point. It was good to have you know some stability rather than owning your own business. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: I talked to a lot of solar entrepreneurs who have uh, exited, and they welcome that sense of relief to take mm-hmm. a one or two-year breather. What do you feel like you learned? from the catalog sales business that has helped you in subsequent ventures?
1: I think taking that same knowledge and being able to use it in a more digital world, I think there's a lot of parallels. It's really different, but there are a lot of parallels. I mean, one of the things that we had done because it was non-digital, we had to do things, we had to be innovative at the time. We would look at uh, census maps, and especially like in Nevada, and we would look at you know the people per or households, especially people per square mile, and we look for the least dense area. So if you look in Nevada, you can find places that per square mile there's three people, mm-hmm. and those are the zip codes that we wanted. So we would blast those zip codes with a mass mailing catalog requests, basically postcards. So we learned how to do that. I was like the first spam, <laughs> which is the same thing we do today. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody that. in a neighborhood would get our little catalog request postcard. And from those, the, if they wanted to, they would put, at the time, $5. They'd put $5 in an envelope and send it to us. And that's how we built up, built up the uh, mail-order business. The $5 was to pay for the catalog? Pay for the catalog and the shipping of the catalog. But remember, in those days, in the 80s, that was a lot of money, $5. And it it helped spur that mail-order business and it and it, and it, kind of, uh, you know, somebody that was willing to put $5 in an envelope were serious.
0: $5 in 1980 in 2018 terms would be $15.30, to put that in perspective. That's someone you've never seen. You're going to send them $15 to, to right, keep Right, uh, right, exactly. But It had get. a
1: lot of information in that catalog as well. So it wasn't just a sales catalog. It was, yeah. you know, a lot of information, and now we built on that. And Amazing. again, that was before computers.
0: <sighs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, my... I have a tremendous amount of respect for marketers and sales folks that were able to build a product or a, a category even out of, out of thin air in the 70s and 80s and, and, and long before that. So I mentioned, you know, you mentioned Ron Kennedy, uh, I mentioned Art Rudin a bit earlier. I mean, some of the folks that I consider your contemporaries, you all in your own right are pioneers. Uh, Art, uh, namely, was the head sales guy for Arco, Solar Arco, right? Not Solarx. He was at Arco. Arco, right. Yeah, the VP of sales at Arco. What do you recall from those early days, the late 70s, the early 80s, with regard to watching the migration, sorry, the, the transition from solar hot water to solar PV, that, I mean, what sticks out to you? Funny stories that you and Art and you know, Peter Beadle and John Burdner,
1: you guys laugh about now, but that at the there time- There was no migration. <laughs> no? Basically, there was no. The, the, the overlap of hot water- solar and PV, there was really no connection. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about this and talking to somebody the other day about this story. In the early days, there were Mm -hmm. some associations, um, like trade associations, Mm -hmm. and they were mainly thermal hot water companies that had formed these associations um, for policy and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember we decided, okay, it's time to step up and we're going to join one of these associations. Mm. And I wish I had the letter. We sent a letter out with the filling out the application and in, right. in, in a check, whatever it was at the time, 50 bucks or something to join the association. We had the check returned and a letter saying, sorry, at this time, the kind of business you do with these photovoltaic systems are really not considered really solar business and that uh, we, we're returning your check <laughs> wow we can't help you as an association right want- right we couldn't join the so- we couldn't join the solar association because we were a pv only company unbelievable and uh yeah we, we were blown away we were we were uh, hurt <laughs> we were and it was a big step for us we thought we were becoming corporate if we would join the association and so we were refused to, uh, an option to join that join the association mm. so for years we kind of backed off and stay stick way out of that corporate policy group.
0: Well, so speaking of corporate policy, I mean you've watched lots of different policies come to fruition. If you check out Sam's LinkedIn, you've been involved in a lot of companies, you know, you were the I would say famously the VP at Trace Engineering Xantrex, uh, a company that many of, and it might, it might hear the word Xantrex, don't recognize that that's Schneider Electric here in the U.S. now uh, on the photovoltaic side. Schneider rolled up Xantrex, Xantrex uh, rolled up Trace. How did policy impact the solar industry from the 90s to let's call it roughly 2006?
1: You know, I, I think the biggest issue was the you know, the move towards on-grid solar and, and cost effectiveness of that and the support and the government support and policy mm-hmm. that were necessary. I mean, I was on the, the, the CSI committee and right. there was only a, a handful of us. I think maybe a dozen folks that, mm-hmm. that participated in that committee really that worked night and day for about oh, a year and a half or so to mm-hmm. make that happen. Jan McFarland headed yep. that up. Mm-hmm. And then CSI is the
0: California Solar Initiative, for those who are
1: not sure. Not right. That. And that's really what kicked things off. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember, and this was part of Cal-C at the time, we were looking at, you know, what are we going to work on in policy for the year? Mm-hmm. And Jan was really connected with the governor at the time, Schwarzenegger at the time, yep. and knew her way around the Energy Commission. And we talked about, oh, let's see if we can put together some kind of incentive program. We thought, oh, okay, let's see if we can go after a half a million or something. And she says, no, let's go after it. <laughs> let's go for a billion dollars or something very yeah. large. And uh, so we worked hard and ended up getting, you know, quite the program. And and that, and not only the program to fund it, but also the mechanism and the support behind that. Yeah. The the uh, California Energy Commission working together in concert with the the industry to make sure the rules couldn't be gamed and that it would be as reliable as possible. And I think that's what the match really worked well.
0: In case folks missed this, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger, Republican governor, bipartisan support for spearheading what became the bellwether for reviving the U.S. solar industry uh, and creating, in many ways, the catalyst of the current U.S. solar boom since 2006, uh, which is the California Solar Initiative spurred by SB1 and the Million Solar Roofs Initiative. We've t- talked about it a ton here uh, with with other guests. And Jan McFarland, uh, what was her role? What was she
1: doing? Uh, she was the head of the CALSEA at the time.
0: Head of CALSEA. Executive, yeah,
1: director uh, director of CALSEA.
0: She's the predecessor to, uh, I think she handpicked Bernadette now to run, right? Make right, it, exactly. Yeah, so Bernadette, Bernadette is, has, has come uh, along uh, after Jan to run CALSEA. And has done an admirable job, but many don't know, I think that Bernadette was there sort of from the very beginning as well. And it was, this was a catalyst for a lot of things, but it was also uh, one of the things that helped you guys get uh, John Berdner uh, and you get SMA rolling, right? So you guys have been involved in, you were a SHOT and had seen what was going on over in Europe. Can you talk about the story of sort of bringing
1: SMA in and how that all happened? We were one of the owners, original owners of, of Trace. And then that moved into Xantrax, long story. We ended up, most of us all leaving Xantrax at one point. And so I moved to, to a company, uh, Shot Solar, which is a German company that had the same kind of idea of photocom. It sounded good. Buying up companies, putting together a uh, consortium of companies around the U.S. with different expertise, servicing the grid time market. And the ultimate goal was to manufacture solar modules here in the US. Yeah. It was a pretty aggressive program that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So from that, there was for me in my career, it was a about a two-year period of you know leaving Xandrix a, a major inverter company and being a competitor of SMA's worldwide. So we knew mm-hmm. SMA pretty well. And John had decided, and John had worked for us as an independent power company for quite a while. So he was real you know, tuned to off-grid and began, you know, dabbling in the on-grid business and had decided to contact SMA and see if they wanted to come to the U.S. So that's how it really started. John brought SMA to the U.S. And remember, the grid type market was just starting. That was about 2001, maybe mm-hmm. 2002 yeah. and that neighborhood and there was really the grid tie market, there was only a couple little companies in the US doing grid tie. Now Trey Sandrix had been doing grid tie, but based on battery-based off-grid inverters being modified to work on grid. It was clumsy, it was it worked, but it was clumsy, it was not efficient and it was expensive. The SMA inverter line was much less expensive, hmm. much more reliable, much more um, efficient. And now the CSI program was just coming into place, yeah. And I believe the first CSI program in that time was about two dollars seventy-five cents a watt rebate. I think, and that's a lot of money rebate. If you look at it today, it's, it seems impossible, but but module costs very high. Yeah. So that supplemented what was going on, plus being able to look at you know net metering policies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or, and remember, California now was in the the driver's seat for all this.
0: That's right. And CSI, as it came on board, the S-chip before it had just given you a dollar per watt, but CSI was turning the corner and beginning to uh, favor efficiency. And the Germans had way better efficiency. I remember SMA becoming the number one inverter in the market because they were 96.5% efficient, where everyone else was in the 91, 92 range.
1: The rebate was based on the efficiency of the inverter, Mm -hmm. CEC rating, they called it, times the efficiency of the solar panel, times together, times the uh, uh, mm-hmm. the rating rebate amount. So yeah, the higher efficiency, the better the rebate. And the rebate was given back at that point. It wasn't a tax credit; it was a rebate you'd get in yeah. your hand. You go yeah, boom! Here's money in your hand. It was uh, it was huge. On the policy side, we had to keep trying to adjust the CSI so that. It wasn't only efficiency, but reliability was part of it, and that was a challenge, so yeah, I didn't make that happen.
0: How do you contrast and then maybe even when you're in discussions today with folks that you're advising, how do you contrast the early days and the work that you had to do with the the way solar is sold today?
1: Uh, I'm not sure that's, t- that's that a, a tough f- question yeah I mean uh-huh. right now it's i mean it's really totally economics mm-hmm. in the old days it was. You know, the early adopters were, was a little about about economics. Okay, it's a 12, 13, 14, 15 year payback, but it was an environmental concern. Yeah. And so this, the early adopters were doing it for other than uh, economic reasons, but the economic part was the second part. Yeah. So, and when you have solar modules that were $3.50 a watt for the solar modules, it took a long time for the payback. Sure did. And it's 10 times what it is today almost. Hey Warrior, if you're like me, you
2: like to use best-in-class tools to accomplish the job at hand, and you want an ecosystem of products that all talk to each other without you having to do all the heavy lifting. And I bet in your job as a solar professional, you want tools that work the way the rest of your life works. You know, that ecosystem, best-in-class products for every piece of your workflow. That's why many Suncast listeners are also such fanatics of Helioscope. It's not just a great software platform, it also connects with other great software platforms. This includes NearMap for high-res imagery, Homer for microgrid design and optimization, UniRack UBuilder for automatic racking design, even Ecotisa for Spanish language proposals, and of course Energy Toolbase for financial analysis, utility rate optimization, and proposals. The folks at Folsom Labs believe in empowering customers to use whatever program you want to use, however they want to use it. And that's why they're committed to fostering this ecosystem with other great software platforms. If you're already using Helioscope, why don't you ask how you can maximize your productivity with these other awesome plugins? And if you're not already using Helioscope, well, you should head to mysuncast.com and click on the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's right, 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you try helioscope it's fast easy and bankable if you're enjoying suncast and you'd like to have access not just to all the additional stuff i can't publish in the primary
0: feed but also the back channel of conversation chat webinars and inner circle advisory that other solar warriors are enjoying consider checking out the suncast tribe you can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash member so you've been a part of some pretty historic growth in the solar market. A lot's changed in the last 40 years. What do you think is true about solar now that wasn't true uh,
1: in the 80s and 90s? Well, the positive side is that it's you know, pretty well known. You can say solar to almost any homeowner and they have an idea of what you're talking about. Yeah. And that it, it is a tool and it's an appliance. I mean, and that's, that was their holy grail is to make it more available to, to any homeowner. That was our, our goal. And not only to that, but to see the day when grid power and uh, PV produced grid power would be at the same price or cheaper than utility costs. And we've seen that day with incentives, at least. And so that was a big goal. And we've, yeah. now we've got we've we're there. So now the other part of that, the downside, is that as that starts to happen and becomes bigger business, then you see the influx of you know, flaky companies and, you know, folks that used to sell satellite mm-hmm. dishes and and things like that come into the business and the moral structure sometimes isn't as stellar as it could be.
0: Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's got to be difficult for someone, especially who got into it for a lot of the right reasons, got into the idea that harvesting energy from the sun is, apart from it's environmentally friendly and the right thing to do, it is energy for all, right? It's it's access and equity.
1: But we do see, I mean, you see the pushback from utilities. I mean, the utilities move, you know, as you work on grid tie, not off grid, but the grid tie business has a lot of pushback from utilities. And the utilities are, you know, in most cases, monopolies. And they are trying to protect their own interests. Right. And they move slow. <laughs> so mm. as they see this market explode, displacing watts and kilowatt hours to their customers, it's, it's affecting their bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of pushback from utilities. There was a time when we were at Trace Santrix that we knew of every single solar installation in the U.S. because we had to be at those places. That seemed unfathomable at this point, right? Yeah, we the utility protection engineers couldn't believe that we could push power back to the grid safely in a little box. I mean, mm. this little box how could it do that? And they wanted to have uh, you know, a test done. They wanted to have the protection engineers test every single system. They wanted to have million dollar insurance policies on these homes to protect their grid and personnel. So we had to have, you know, meetings and letters and Right. Documentation um, that these things were safe and, and wouldn't kill personnel on the on the power lines when when the power went down. That these things would turn off, and that was a huge hurdle yeah. to get and, through.
0: Yeah. And I remember, you know, SMA was was critical to helping uh, with the anti-lending rules and, and helping utilities understand how how this all worked. Um, I have to Absolutely. imagine that was work that you and John and the SMA team were involved in. So I mentioned, you know, you've been a part of historic growth and a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we, we wish we hadn't even had time for just to talk about stories. But I'd love to know, given the context, given, you know, 40 years of history in our industry, what do you believe is the next frontier market, so to speak? You know, how solar with solar's becoming a standard, not an ancillary service? What, what corners are you looking around now that you think is the next way we should be thinking about?
1: Well, it's, it's already happening, and, and it's, uh, things always come back around again. I mean, at the trace engineering days, when we went from off-grid to on-grid, so what we did, we, we took off-grid machines and inverters and modified those for on-grid. We're seeing the kind of the opposite thing happen now. So we're now we're seeing these on-grid inverters and in machines being coupled with batteries to be you know, standalone off-grid islanding systems. So right. it's it's ideal. It's uh, what's interesting that I find, and I've done some work for some of these companies that are coming back into the business. LG and companies like that. That history has been lost. These companies that are developing these newer right. battery-based, especially residential and small commercial, have to relearn all the stuff we did at Trace Engineering. 15. Right year 20 years ago so it's interesting i'm going we've got to go through that same learning curve uh we we can't just jump (laughs) we've got we've got to look at how it was done first and then then move on because I, i see the energy storage today is is not there
0: it's interesting to me to see how companies like you know i mean someone who got in the industry let's call it four or five years ago wouldn't probably recognize that Kyocera for two decades was an off-grid leader, was a solar panel manufacturing leader, where many folks in their late 30s to, to 50s, by age, I mean, are alumnus of Kyocera and have been involved in off-grid throughout the world. And yet no one talks about Kyocera today in off-grid.
1: There's just, there's a- there's For an, phones. They're well-known for phones. That's right. And, <laughs> and ceramics, of course. <laughs> Copy machines and things like that. Yeah. yeah. The PV part is kind of lost.
0: Well, Sam, I want to do a segment I often call Hot or Hype, and I'm going to add a, a piece to it, Hot, Hype, or Hope. <laughs> it's because I, I want to leave that, that third out. Uh, I find that sometimes the question just leaves no out and a reticence to give an answer. But Hot, Hype, or Hope, I name a specific topic, and you spend 30, 60 seconds telling me whether you think it's hot, hype, or, or has some hope, but just not now. So we'll start with the topic of microgrids. Hot, Hype, or Hope? I
1: think it's hot and it's hope I think microgrids are really important. I think that's where the industry's moving towards and that that line between the grid and the behind the meter is blurred right now and will be more defined in the next few years. And that's with battery development really the cost of batteries and
0: and switchgear. Vehicle to grid the idea of the nexus between electric mobility and, and the grid, is that hot?
1: Mostly hype. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's something there for sure. But that ability to push back to the grid and leave your batteries flat in your, in your vehicle is, is tough. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of economics and politics involved around that mm-hmm. that, that need to be worked out.
0: One that I think I probably know the answer to for you, but distributed solar and
1: storage. I think that's where the it's it's hot, but like I was saying before, I think there's a lot to be learned. I mean, I, I, you watch what Tesla is doing uh technically price-wise, I think, it's a long learning curve. I, I just yeah. don't think that they're there yet. Tesla's not there and, mm-hmm. and they're pushing them pretty hard. I think LG is trying really hard. And then there's a whole host of companies behind them. I mean, uh, just recently, Mercedes pulled the plug on their program. Really? I, I didn't thought, realize that. Okay. Yeah, I thought they were going to do well, but this mm-hmm. is what but I just heard this at SPI. Wow. I think it's true that uh, it's a tough market. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know early adopters into these markets, and the, and the amount of cash you've got to throw at these these technologies and markets. It's it takes a while for the payback if there is payback. But usually, some of the early adopters get you know swept under the carpet, and you've mm-hmm. got and newer companies coming in to take over after they've done the work. So I think that microgrids. And that ability to use that energy in a more local area is, is huge. I think it's not only hot, but I think it's you know, the future. And again, trying to work with utilities, how that interacts with the utilities. Uh, the utilities have not figured it out well enough, so they push back how it's going to be done and how the interface is, is happening. And a lot of that is policy.
0: What are some key lessons or takeaways from the mentors in your life
1: and things that you pass on now as you advise others? There's a lot of us. I mean, you're involved with the Solar Pioneers group that Jeff mm-hmm. Spee's put together. It's really interesting coming back together At SPI. We all came together and we had a little interview panel session, and that was great. And I, I learn stories every time we get together, and you know, Charlie Gay and some of the the things that happened in the old days, but afterwards we sat around and, and chatted for a half hour to an hour, and just that camaraderie. We don't get together very often, mm-hmm. and and to hear where people are today mm-hmm. is real important, and, and the accomplishments they made over time, and how they feel about those accomplishments. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was a room full of us afterwards, of maybe about thirty people, and it was uh, it feels like family. Yeah, but, you know,
0: you and I talked. A couple of times about how you guys all were part of proliferating a technology in the world that nobody knew how or where it could expand or where it was going on two fronts i see how you feel a particular sense of obligation and responsibility for helping the world know what to do with solar in its current status there's there's on the one hand you've got folks who were original pioneer founders who are helping proliferate solar in, from an energy equity perspective throughout Latin America and Africa. I know you've been involved in that. And then on the other hand, you've got the whole life cycle of these panels. And panels that you guys fabricated in the 70s are now being retired, and nobody knows what to do with them. Can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's a it's a, it's a large subject to talk about. And it's a parallel, just to make sure we bring it up. It's a parallel to what's happening with the microgrids and lithium especially lithium batteries, but all batteries, but especially lithium, it's the end of life. The emphasis is put on installing more and more and more equipment, more and more and more solar panels and more and more batteries. And end of life for those pieces of equipment is not being looked at very carefully, mainly mm-hmm. because there's so no economics in it today. Yeah, And that's the, that's the challenge, that it costs more to recycle and process lithium batteries or solar panels than the materials you get out of it. And that's the misnomer right now. So how do we solve
0: that? And what are you, what are you working on to help try to bring that to reality? Uh, we're spending a lot of money and time. <laughs> <laughs> Is this no something profit. that we can talk about? I mean, you seem like you're, you're pushing back on it a little bit, Sam. Uh,
1: well, no, it, it's, it's a tad frustrating because we have a regular business to run to. We pay the bills, right? Yeah. So, so we, uh, I do a lot of consulting for manufacturers, especially. Um, and also we do a lot of sales and repair of uh, inverters, and that pays the bills, and that's fine. So, as we move forward with you know the PV, <laughs> the whole enterprise of putting solar up and installing solar and putting more solar up. And and all of us have been doing this for a long time, making sure the incentives are in place and the policies. And we've done a great job of that. What hasn't been done and hasn't been really looked at, because it wasn't a big problem for a long time, is what happens at the end of life. And in the U.S. especially, let's talk about the U.S. for a minute. Uh, In Europe, it's really different. In Europe, regulation has been in place for many years more than 10 years about not just solar but all products what happens at the end of life and there needs to be programs there are programs in europe that uh, require uh, processes for end of life for computers and phones and all that Um, it's in place and it's been in place for a long time so it's it's not something that is unknown there now you come to the u.s that's really different it's totally different now People are willing to pay for when you buy new tires for your car. There's a little line item in the bottom and it says, you know, whatever $3 a piece or you buy a battery and there's a $15 core charge. Kind of forget about it. I mean, when you go to the grocery store and you, you buy a, you know, your favorite beverage and you pay for it. You don't go, Oh wow. I had to pay an extra five cents on that. You just don't think about it. But what behind that, what's happened is the mechanism to collect all that garbage and be able to process it and turn it back into something usable. The infrastructures are because of those fees. Yeah. So we don't have that in the solar industry. Not yet. What we have now is we've had a clean industry of promoting clean renewable energy with clean products that the concept is these solar panels last for 30 plus years, kind of forever even. You know, that's the mentality that we've promoted. The reality is quite different is what we're finding the reality is companies going in and out of business, warranty issues happen, hailstorms happen, weather happens. So what we're seeing is hundreds of thousands of solar panels being abandoned uh, like orphans mm. of, um, that are being disposed of in not proper ways. And the problem is much larger, larger than we ever thought.
0: Is it something, as you pointed out, that CRV covers uh, recycling the glass at the consumer level and the manufacturers of the glass don't have to pay for that? Is that uh, something that you feel is the better path for learning to deal with end of, end of life?
1: I think that's the best way and because there's good models for that in the U.S. already. The pushback we're seeing from the industry by and large, from the solar industry, is that we can't afford to add any more cost to the system anywhere in that, mm-hmm. in that value chain.
0: What does that look like, though? I mean, on a percentage basis, five cents on a on a two dollar fifty cent bottle of beverage is is mint is infinitesimal. It's less than five percent. So does that mean that we can't add an extra five cents per watt? I mean, residential solar, for example, has a a ridiculously l- uh, large customer acquisition cost. Surely there's a way to, as the customer acquisition cost goes down, that we backfill some of that
1: margin with. This tax right with this tax tariff, call it what you'd like yeah. because we were just hit recently with the you know this Chinese import tariff it's in people's minds already it's cost us a lot right God forbid add another tariff on top of it what are industry
0: associations like SIA doing to help uh, address this issue
1: they're working on it I mean it's uh, but like i said it's it's a, it's a challenge it's a challenge to get the information I think is a big part of what we do is education that how big the problem is globally and how large the problem is here in the U.S. I mean, uh, and that it's not streamlined what to do with the the solar panels that do have problems. And that's another issue. So what happens is they pile up. And and for instance, I mean, the, the, it's a travesty that in the U S each, State has different regulations about waste. And we're not talking about solar anymore. We're talking about waste and waste management. Right. Uh, in California, uh, solar panels, once they're deinstalled and are broken or whatever, they are considered hazardous waste. All solar panels? All solar panels that are deinstalled that Be- are broken or whatever. Based not going on what material? Any material. Okay, but what is what is hazardous about a solar panel? That doesn't matter. It's the regulation that matters. <laughs> The regulation says that when these are deinstalled and and not being put back into service, you can pull them off your roof and put them back on, not a problem. But if you pull them off and they need to go to be recycled or to be handled in some way. They have to be treated like hazardous waste. But they can't be in California based on those regulations. It's 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 a shame. So what happens is what we're seeing in the U.S. right now, especially in California, we're seeing stacks of solar panels and warehouses that are broken that have no home because you can't really easily recycle them in California. So you've got to ship them someplace else. So you can ship them to Nevada, let's say, and they can go into, there's no regulations there. They can go in the landfill there. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing these clean products that produce energy for good part of their useful life. And then they get thrown into the trash What a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, We're trying to bring some awareness to that and see if we can change that. And policy is one of the ways of changing it. And that's what C is beginning to work on.
0: Let's switch gears here to a segment I call Learning, Leadership, and Legacy. Sam, what book have you given away or recommended the most and why?
1: More than books, maybe YouTube and things like that. There's a lot. And so I, I, I do forward a lot of YouTube Things that I see on YouTube that are that are kind of cool, yeah. Dale Carnegie and some of those things are kind of interesting to watch the old, the old videos. Okay, um, and part of the sales stuff and Earl Nightingale. Do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Those kind of things. Those are kind of cool that I they forward to folks lately. Talk about ethics and sales and things like that.
0: Oh, cool. I'd love it if you'd forward me some stuff to, cool. when, when you think that. about it, yeah, forward me something uh, interesting to watch, and I'll be sure to pass it along to the Suncast tribe. Is there, is there anything in particular that you recall that you read that had a lasting impact on you? It
1: maybe influence the way you lead or or the way you approach the world? It just recently I, I picked up a copy, an old copy, old copy, I'm not sure what year it is, The Beginnings of Greenpeace and the History of Greenpeace. And it's really interesting to watch the way at the early days of Greenpeace and how it started. And I so I've just started the book and it's interesting to...
0: Is it, to do you remember what the book's
1: called? I think it's called History of Greenpeace. Uh, okay. It's got the Rainbow Warrior in the front cover. It's talked about the lineage and you know what was happening in Australia, what was happening in New Zealand, what was happening in the US. Let me see Europe. if I can find it real quick. Blow yeah. It's history cool, it's a cool book green. and I just started it. So I'm just, I kind of did the first thumb through and then started at the beginning. I love it. Well, if any of you guys out there find a,
0: a book on the history of Greenpeace and you want to link to the, how we can buy it, I'd love to get a copy of it. I, I love it. I, I try to get my hands on all the books that are recommended by guests on Suncast. Sam, as we, as we round the corner here, uh, I always ask the following three questions. I'll start with what one thing do you consistently do that yields the greatest
1: impact or results in your life? get up in the morning, have coffee. That's the first thing. (laughs) And um, I I think that for me, I really like to understand what's going on in world politics. Mm -hmm. I spend quite a bit of time either in the evening times or in the morning before starting work to understand what's happening in in the world. Yeah. You know, what's happening in in Europe, what's happening in the US.
0: How do you do that? How do you stay informed?
1: Uh, Easy searching, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's amazing now with YouTube how much you can find and it's pretty up to date. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the hours when it was posted. Right. And hmm. it's it's pretty current. And it's also different than it used to be. I mean if you, if you you look at Fox News or ABC or NBC, you always get some kind of commentary that is biased. Yeah. And YouTube Tends to be across platforms, not so biased, nice. or it can be biased, but you can jump it's around. Easier, so yeah. I,
0: it's, I find it's easier, yeah, right, to filter
1: yeah. what's biased and what's not. So, and I look at all of it. I look at you know both sides, and I, I try to try to understand why. And in fact, a lot of times I look at you know pretty uh, conservative stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not, but I want to see their side and see where they're coming from.
0: I can tell that you're a visual learner, Sam. Yeah. Where can people find you? How can some, if someone wanted to get in touch, how would they reach out? Where where can they learn
1: more about you? I think just reaching out either the Solar Cowboys, so yeah. it's Solar Cowboys with a Z at the end dot com, or Recycle PV dot Solar. Okay, those websites are easy ways to get a hold of us, and we travel a lot, so sending in questions and answers to those.
0: All right, and I'm going to link also to your uh, to your LinkedIn page, which is how you and I
1: often communicate. Yeah, um, exactly. Yep. My is not up to date all that much, you know. It's just a it's a placeholder, and
0: yeah, that's fine. At least they can uh, they can get a sense of uh, of who you are, and obviously, they've listened this far into this interview. They have a good sense of who you are, Sam. Uh, before we part, is there anything that we can do to help? The Solar Warriors are a committed tribe, uh, dedicated to seeing this industry move forward. And in many ways, I mean, we've got folks that are involved at the highest levels of industry. Is there something we can do to help? move forward? What what ask would you have of us?
1: The ask I would have is help, you know, you know across the industry and, and outside the industry as well, even in the uh, financial industry, is to look at uh, how to support the mess that we're causing today for solar module end of life. I, I think the platforms, how we're doing it, what we can do, it's a big task to try to find good solutions. And we're not there yet. You know, it's it's just not happening, and and the problem is much much larger than we ever anticipated. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just some examples for the numbers. That's just usually it's staggering how large the numbers are. Right now, today in the U.S. in the U.S. only, we're installing six million pounds of solar panels per day. Waste management looks at number of solar panels: six million pounds. That's like a Costco building full of solar panels every day with no process for end of life. It's a lot, and and I we looked at you know what is the installed volume that we've already installed you know over time, and if we filled a train a regular freight train full of solar panels they are filled to the top, that train would extend from California almost to New York. Wow, it's like sixty five gigawatts of solar panels, and they have no home. So what they end up doing because we have no policy and no straightforward way of of processing. And I mean, processing, it's not just recycling, recycling, reusing, all of that, looking at the different methods to to reuse or or process these in a proper way. Because there's no clean, simple, direct solutions today, a lot of these, we think about 90% end up in landfills. And we're trying to avoid that. Finally, let's end
0: today, Sam, as we always do, with what I call bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: I don't think it's very top secret. I think that autonomy, I think everyone wants to be more autonomous from the grid, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I think for our industry, being able to manage that and being able to manage energy in and out, and, and that allows us to look at microgrids and how that's done, and batteries and, or energy storage in all different ways. And I think we haven't seen really the appliances and the software for energy storage systems yet. I think that's what we're going to see a lot of in the next five years. I think the, the um, platform for those technologies in the next five five years will look really different five years from now than they do today. I think it'll be quite different and the policies will be changed. The products will be changed and the interfaces will be much simpler than they are today. That's my prediction. I love it.
0: Well, as the platform for uh, these innovative new technologies evolves and becomes ever forward uh, or ever closer to energy autonomy, We will be tracking it here on SunCast, and we'll be touching base with you again, Sam, to get your insights. Thank you for joining us on SunCast and sharing from your depth of knowledge and wisdom.
1: Thanks, Nico. That was great.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy it. Thank you so much.
2: Well, Warrior, there you have it. Another pioneer of the industry sharing about how his business has evolved over the last four decades and inspiring us all with what's possible. I'm particularly moved by the thought that one of the earliest advocates and salespeople in our industry has now turned his attention to what to do with those panels and products at the end of life. And I, for one, never knew just how hard that business could be. I look forward to keeping tabs on the progress of Recycle PV and hope to have Sam back on next year to discuss their progress. How about you? What was your major takeaway from Sam? What about this episode was the cranberry sauce to your turkey or the gravy to your stuffing? Are you catching up over the holiday weekend like me? If so, find me on Twitter at Nico Mayo or on LinkedIn and let me know, would you? Well, it is the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. and I'm thankful that we keep rolling here on Suncast with exciting content. And that's why next week I'm really, really excited that we're finally able to publish an episode with a North Carolina-based blockchain and energy entrepreneur. And I have some goodies for those in the Suncast tribe that are an insider peek into the thoughts of someone I consider a blockchain and cryptocurrency expert. I read Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin paper probably around 2009, late 2009. Yeah. That was the voice of Gerard Newkirk, a friend of mine who launched KWH Coin at the height of the cryptocurrency buzz last year and is a man on a mission to transform how the billion people in the world without energy can receive that vital civic infrastructure that they need, starting with Africa, but extending to many other places in the world. So tune in again next week to hear more from this amazing entrepreneur. You know, the fact that you're still listening tells me that you really do value the work that we're doing here on Suncast. And if that's true, and you have been wondering how we can connect more or how you can help, would you please consider supporting the podcast financially by becoming a member of my solar tribe, You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to learn more. At least while you're there, you can join our newsletter so you won't miss out on all the great things that are coming from Suncast. Well, if, like me, you are celebrating the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving once again. I'm truly thankful for you, my friend. Thank you for listening. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.
1: Kia!